1 Corinthians chapter 2. Now, before we even read this, I had a long conversation with the Lord on Friday specifically about this because we get down to the last couple of verses we're going to study and we will have studied some very significant things, some potent and powerful things. And we'll get down to the last two verses and in the natural man or the natural woman you might find yourself uh, tuning out early. Uh, making your lunch reservations ahead of time. <laughs> Stay with me. I say this uh, to your good, to your encouragement. Stay with me. When we get down to these last two verses, it, it kicks into high gear, but you've got to stick through. Uh, sometimes I, I leave things for a Wednesday night thinking, okay, well, we can, people come expecting to really go super deep. and uh, This is so important. I want you all to hear it. So, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11. I'll read the section and then we'll pray and get into it. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the spirit of God. Now, we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God so that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They're foolishness to him. He cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. But... He who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Oh, Father, this is big. This is glorious. It is wonderful news. And it strikes right at, I believe, the greatest desire of men and women in this world. To know and be known by our God. And I pray that you will walk us through this. Lord, gently, I know there are some tough things ahead of us. I pray that you will lead us intentionally. And Lord Jesus, by your Spirit, I ask that you will give us ears to hear this morning what your Spirit is saying to this church fellowship today. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, everybody's talking about, of course, Brexit. Brexit. No, it's not a new hair care product. It is Great Britain's exit from the European Union taking place in their voting just this Thursday, the 23rd. The 28 member states is now 27 in the European Union and it is flipping the world upside down and financial markets are doing what they do. They're panicking emotionally. They always do. And the world is looking at this and there are very divided opinions about it, but Great Britain is, as some would put it, taking back their full independence. Great Britain was being ruled over 51% of the laws that they were finding themselves under were coming out of Brussels and not out of Great Britain itself. 
coming from the European Union. And so began this, this national movement. The figurehead, a man by the name of Nigel Farage. Nigel's a great English name, isn't it? Nigel! And Nigel Farage was the voice, is the voice of the movement, appealing to British nationalism and sovereignty and independence. And there were many pundits over the last few weeks who thought, this is not going to happen. And it happened. And the world is a bit shaken. Again, 28 member states now, 27. I think biblically it needs to be about 10. We'll talk about that when we get to the book of Revelation. But until then, Nigel Farage comes out and on the night before the vote, gave this rousing speech, gathered these folks around him, and the last thing he said in the speech was the rally cry of the movement, let's make June 23rd our Independence Day. And of course, the group erupted in applause. Our Independence Day. That's the rally cry for this Brexit movement. Our rallying cry is much greater than that of Great Britain. A much greater cry, in fact, it's a message of another kingdom, the kingdom of God. Let me show it to you because every Christian ought to be aware of the rally cry of our faith. This is it. In a nutshell, this is the whole thing. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2. Paul, coming to Corinth, brought this message loud and clear. I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That is the rallying cry of the follower of Jesus Christ. It is the only message that will pierce the heart. It's the only one that gets through. It is not the message of ease the message of wealth, the message of this is how you, you live an easier, happier, more successful life. It is the message of the cross of Jesus Christ. We rally around that. It pierces, it reveals the heart like nothing else does. Forty days after the birth of Jesus, Joseph and Mary brought little Jesus up to the temple, up to Jerusalem from Bethlehem. They made that six-mile journey. And coming into the temple courts, they were about to present Jesus and fulfill the laws of purification. And at that time, out of nowhere, an old man came shuffling up, a man by the name of Shimon. Let me read to you what Shimon had to say. He took Jesus in his arms. He blessed God. And he said, Luke chapter 2, verse 29, Now, Lord! You are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. And his father and his mother were amazed at the things which were being said about him. And Shimon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Listen, behold... This child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel. And for a sign to be opposed. And a sword will pierce even your own soul. To the end that thoughts from many hearts will be revealed. That's what the cross does. The cross pierces the heart and reveals what's going on inside. You cannot get away from it. 
The message of the crucified Jesus. After Peter preached the cross, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ on the day of Pentecost, the people with one voice were told they were pierced to the heart. Acts 2.37 And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Christ crucified is the message that cuts to the heart. It is our message. It's the message around which we rally. We rally to the cross. And again, it reveals everything that's going on inside. You hear about the cross. And if it moves you, if it touches you, if it challenges perhaps your lifestyle, you know that the piercing cross has gotten through. If you hear about the cross and you say, I don't need that. I don't want that. Don't talk to me about Jesus. Well, that reveals something in your heart too, doesn't it? The cross is revealing. But what's the message once we've believed? I know we come to the cross. We do it every time we take communion. It's why we do it every, every Sunday morning. If perchance I might forget to talk about the cross in the teaching, if I might let it slip and not talk about it, we have had communion. We have come to the table. We've considered the body, the blood of Jesus every single week. Why? Because we rally to the cross. Because it is at the heart of our salvation. But once you have learned this, once you have come to this, once you have believed in it, and while we agree with every proclamation of the cross, is there another message? Is there more to perhaps this message? Listen again. I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. The and Him crucified, that is salvation for the lost, that is the message of the cross. But the knowing nothing except Jesus Christ, that's life for the saved. That's where we go once we have accepted the cross, once we've been pierced to the heart. Now it is determining to know nothing but Jesus Christ, period. Knowing Jesus. It's why we keep showing up, isn't it? I mean, are you coming every week? Just to hear about the cross? Not that the cross isn't marvelous. But the cross for the believer is past tense. My salvation as of 2,000 years ago. What about now? Now it's about knowing Jesus. The one who suffered, the one who died for me, I can know. I can walk with. I can learn from. And the question I want you to brood over this morning and struggle with, and trust me, at some point you may struggle. I've been warning. I warned it on Wednesday night. There are teachings from Paul coming in this letter that will offend, that will upset, that will overturn even some of our lifestyles if we will pay attention and if we will give God the glory due Him. But even this morning, the question is this. Are you, am I, truly determined to know Jesus Christ? Do you really want to know Him? You might ask the question, okay, yes, but how? How do you know Him? I mean, you can find out about just about anybody, right? You can get the information. I can ponder a polycarp back in history. I can investigate an Irenaeus. I can analyze an Augustine. I can learn of a Luther, weigh a Wesley, study a Spurgeon. I can mull a Mutie. I can think about a Tozer. 
And I can get the info on a gram. Billy or Ruth, you know, whatever. I can learn of these people. But you know what? I don't know them. I don't know them. I can read intricate biographies about them. I don't know them. I can read the autobiography of Benjamin Franklin. I don't know him. I know about him. Can I say I know the patriarchs of Scripture? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Can I say I know the the fathers? Joshua, Moses, David. Can I say I know the prophets? Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Samuel. Can I say I know the apostles? No, I don't know the apostles. I know an awful lot about Peter. We joke from time to time about Peter being so bullheaded like so many of us. But that's information about him. I don't know Peter. I will, but I don't. I don't know Paul. We're in the midst of his letters. You get a good sense of the passion of this man. But you know what? We don't know Paul. We just know about him. And that's a completely different thing. The best I can do with anybody in history is know about them except Jesus. Because I can know Jesus. It's not just information. And my friends, we could stop right there. That's the whole thing this morning. We're not going to, but we could. (laughs) I can know Jesus Christ personally. Look at verse 11 of chapter 2. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? That makes perfect sense, right? You know what you're thinking. I don't, but you do. I know what I'm thinking. And Paul says, even so, the thoughts of God, no one knows except the Spirit of God. Well, of course. So the person who knows Jesus best is the Spirit of Jesus. The Spirit of God knows God best. Now, aside from the obvious that Jesus is God, what I would call the magnificent difference between Jesus Christ and all other people in all history is very simply this. I can know Him. I cannot know anybody else who came before me. But I can know Jesus. I can talk with Jesus. I can walk with Jesus. I can be in the presence of Jesus. I can know Him, not just know about Him. And Paul shows us here so clearly the secret to knowing Jesus. And the secret is His Spirit. His Spirit. You cannot know Him any other way. The Spirit of Abraham can't speak to me. The Spirit of Moses remains silent on the earth. Even the Spirit of Paul, as I talked about, He can't get through to me that I might know Him personally. But Jesus, I can know by His Spirit. By His Spirit. Okay, Rick, that's where you lose me. That's where it starts to get vague. Alright, well let's clear that up. Jesus said absolutely clearly to the Samaritan woman at Jacob's well, God is Spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in Spirit and in truth. So right there, Jesus elevated the issue of Spirit and truth to the place of the worship of God. You cannot worship God unless you do so in the Spirit. All of the worship doesn't reach Him. It must be in spirit and in truth. Now, stay with me. This is not hashtag spirituality. 
This is so contrary to everything that the world thinks about spirituality and spiritual things. It is also contrary, tragically, to what many Christians think or believe about spirituality and spiritual things. Hashtag spirituality. Tweet that sometime. I did, yesterday. We tweeted, hashtag spirituality, and what we got was nothing short of bizarre. Check it out. The first tweet that popped up from the Isha Foundation. Hashtag spirituality is a journey from the gross to the subtle to the point of nothingness. Well, that's great. That's where we're headed. That's what I want in life. My chiefest aim, my big goal, is to boil it all down to nothing. Yeah, I want my life to be a big fat zero. But that's this view of getting everything out until you are just empty. The Bible tells us Jesus is the substance. Jesus is one worth knowing, worth, worth having contact with, worth, worth getting to know. He is deep, He is relevant, He is marvelous, He is true, He is solid. He is everything. He is not nothing. Hashtag spirituality. You know what the second one we got was? My Kundalini Awakening. Oh, that's great. What do I need, like a Hawaiian skirt to do that? My kundalini. My awakening. And then the next one talked about balancing your chakras. <laughs> I can barely organize my sock drawer, much less balance a chakra. What does this mean? These people, these things. But listen, that's how the natural man sees it. Spirituality. It's this, ooh. It's this experiential, out there thing. Wait a minute, let's just all be spiritual. You feel it? You know what? If you're feeling it, you're wrong because it's nothing. The spiritual things. When I talk spirituality, my friends, I am not talking about that that mess. I'm talking about knowing Jesus. I mean, let's just get down to it. Knowing Jesus like I know my close friends, like I know my family, like I know my wife, but more intimately, more personally, more tangibly, more authentically, even than the closest friendship or relationship I have with another human being, I can know Jesus. Which is what we want. Real relationship. Something that's true, not this. Knowing Jesus. Cheryl knows me better than anyone. She knows what makes me tick. She knows my likes and my dislikes. She knows my moods, my interests. She knows when to clear out of the room. She knows my idiosyncrasies. And I I kid you not, with 97.8% accuracy, she knows what I'm thinking. Some of you husbands know what I mean. It drives me nuts. Because I never know what she's thinking. None of us guys do. We look at you ladies and we're like, huh? I think she's thinking this. Not even close. But then with Cheryl, I'll say, you don't know what I'm thinking right now. And she'll blurt it out and I'm like, so frustrating. Know what the Bible says? God knows the secrets of the heart. 
Psalm 44.21. Psalm 51 verse 6. David, after he had been caught in the act of adultery with Bathsheba, he writes this amazing repentant psalm, heartbroken and scared to death because of what he fears could happen. Verse 6, he says, Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being, and in the hidden part, you will make me know wisdom. He says, Create in me, verse 10, a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. And then he says, Listen, I think this was David's greatest fear when he realized he had been busted. Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. I can handle any punishment, God, but don't take your spirit. David had seen it. David watched, knew, was aware of the fact that God removed his spirit from King Saul before him. See, God did that in those days prior to faith in Jesus, prior to the crucifixion, resurrection of Jesus Christ. He would give and remove his spirit. You're not walking with him? Spirit, gone. And he places his spirit on young David. And David in his life crisis, his greatest crisis of sin, cries out, God, do not remove your spirit from me. David had some understanding. In 1 Chronicles 28, verse 9, David said to Solomon, Know the God of your father. Serve Him with a whole heart and a willing mind. For the Lord searches all hearts and understands every intent of the thoughts. He knows it all. He knows you intimately. Know Him, David tells young Solomon. And how many times do we read of Jesus in the Gospels knowing exactly what people were thinking and calling them on it? It's one of my favorite things. I love, as we read through, to find those moments where He says exactly what people are thinking. I would love just to see the expressions on their faces. Here's one, Luke 6, verse 7, the scribes and the Pharisees were watching him. They were looking closely to see if he healed on the Sabbath so that they might find some reason to accuse him. They're all standing around going, ah, let's see if he does this. And the Bible tells us in Luke 6, verse 8, he knew what they were thinking. How does he know? He always knows. So annoying. You know what the truth is? I kid about Cheryl anticipating my thoughts. I joke around about her always knowing what I'm thinking. But you know what? I am so thankful she does. Because it takes all the games out of the relationship. There's no sham. She knows what I'm doing. She knows what I'm up to. And it allows me as her husband to relax. And know that I am known. I walk in the door at the end of the day. It closes behind me. And I know these people know me. And I can't be all haughty. And I can't be all pastoral. Hello, children. (laughs) Blessed wife. I will now take off thine shoes and put on my slippers. No, I I can't do that. They know what a dork I am. And so it's just the way it is. And I walk in there and I'm free to be Rick. And honestly, I am here. I think you know that by now. I'm not really concerned. But the freedom to be yourself, to be known for all that you are. Jesus says, hey, how'd you like to enter a relationship with me where I know everything good about you and everything bad about you and everything ugly about you? I already know it. And I want to be in a relationship with you. 
I want to be in a friendship with you. I want to have kinship, family with you. That's our message. The message of knowing Jesus Christ and Him crucified is not a vague esoteric thing. It's reality. With a God who says, I want to know you. Oftentimes people will come into a church and they say, well, I accept that God knows me. I just wish I could know Him. What do you think Jesus came for? And Philip said to Jesus, John 14, verse 8, Lord, show us the Father and it's enough for us. That's what so many Christians say. I just want to see God. We sing, I want to know you. I want to hear your voice. I want to know you more. And Jesus is like, I'm right here. I am right here. Jesus said to Philip, have I been so long with you and yet you have not come to know me? He says, he who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? I'm right here, Philip. Why did Jesus do it? Why did He come to this earth and spend those three years walking with those twelve men? Relationship. Don't tell me that God didn't have the power to zap them and in a moment send them out as apostles. Filled and spiritual and knowledgeable and ready to go. Little robots, automatons. No. Jesus comes along and says, let's walk together. Let's be friends. Let's sit at the campfire at night. Let's tell jokes together. Let's fish together. Let's deal with some hard times together. Let's get kicked out of cities together. Let's live life together in relationship. Jesus is saying the same thing to you and to me that He said to the apostles 2,000 years ago. Let's walk together in a real relationship. That's spirituality, my friends. That is real spirituality. By the Spirit of God. So Paul lays the foundation of this letter and our rally cry. Christ crucified and knowing Jesus. But listen, both can only happen by the work of the Holy Spirit. And that's why this is spiritual. Gordon Fee says the Spirit of God becomes the link between God and humanity. The quality from God Himself who makes the knowing possible. Without the Spirit, you cannot know God. Because as Paul wrote, it is the spirit within a man who knows the thoughts of the man. So you cannot know God unless the Spirit of God reveals God to you because the Spirit knows the thoughts of God because He is God. Right? Okay, good. We're clear. Here's the good news. He wants you to know Him. So let's see how this works. Verse 12. Now, we have received... You might want to underline that, highlight it, circle it, put little stars around it, little crosses, whatever draws your attention to it. We have received. Not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God so that we may know the things freely given to us by God. Three things I'll have you jot down if you're a note taker this morning. Number one, note the Spirit's dwelling. The Spirit's dwelling. When Paul says, there in verse 12, we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, he's opening the door. So this is the understanding that gets us there, that he is not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God. Now, that's not a comparison statement. Paul is is not contrasting the Holy Spirit with some worldly demonic spirit. That's not what he's doing. He's talking about the Holy Spirit. He's describing the Holy Spirit of God, and he's saying, God's Spirit is not of this world. God's Spirit is out of this world. 
God's Spirit is not like the things of this world. And Jesus said the exact same thing, didn't He? Standing there before Pilate, battered and beaten and bruised and bloodied, Jesus looked at Pilate and John 18.36 He said, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting, so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Jesus is out of this world. The Spirit of God is not of this world. And every Christian must wrestle with that truth. Why? The truth is this. If we have received the Spirit of God, then are we still saying we are of this world? Am I of this world? If the Spirit of God dwells with me, am I still trying to be of this world? With the very Spirit who is not of this world? I am talking to Christians now, so pay attention. We received the Spirit from God, and when we did, He made a change of address. A permanent residency was taken up in your spirit by the Holy Spirit of the living God. You may not have fully recognized it or understood it, but it's what happened. When you came to faith in Jesus Christ, Jesus said in John 14, 23, If anyone loves me, he'll keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. Do not metaphorize this. It is actual, it is tangible reality, it is true spirituality that God now dwells in the heart, in the Spirit, alongside the believer. So I am not without the Spirit of God. I walk with the Spirit of God. I may ignore Him. I may deny Him from time to time. You know, it becomes really, really unsettling when Jesus said the one unforgivable sin is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is one who dwells in me. And if that's the case, then how am I living my life? Romans 8, 9. Paul said, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Him. So get this down. It is absolutely an either-or. Either the Spirit of Christ dwells with you, or He does not. It's not a little bit of both. There's no in-between. The Holy Spirit is not a couch surfer. Moving from this heart to that heart. In and out. Coming and going. He's not a crash pad for the believer. He's not a, hey, I'm there when you show up. And you can't leave Him out of your life. Again, I'm talking to Christians. You cannot leave the Spirit of God out of your life. We deceive ourselves thinking we can. Well, I I don't think that, don't you? Listen, Paul is again laying a foundation for tough teaching on spiritual morality and godly ethics. There are a couple words we don't hear a whole lot in the public arena in America today. Morality and ethics. Morality. Basic morality. To the church at Corinth, and I believe to all of us now, the Spirit is saying, why are you buying into the wisdom, the Sophia of this world? When Jesus, who is the wisdom of God, dwells in you, 
If in fact you've received Jesus, you've come to Christ crucified, now it's about knowing Him, He dwells in you, how can you live like the world with Jesus in you? What do you take Him out and stick Him in the closet? You can't do it. What does that mean, Rick? It means everywhere you go and everything you do, you take Jesus with you. And that should change a whole lot of things for all of us. He's with me. What am I going to subject Him to? What am I going to invite Him to? What in my life experience am I foisting upon Jesus? My brother and I meet occasionally for breakfast and Ron said something to me recently that really shocked me. We were talking about 1 Corinthians and and especially the fact that as we go into this letter deeper in, and I, I keep warning you, storm's coming. There are chapter, there's chapter after chapter after chapter dealing very specifically with stuff that we deal with. And Paul hits it hard, and he hits it true. And we need to hear it. But we're talking specifically about sexual immorality in America today. It's the light breakfast. And my brother made this comment, and it really bothered me. Perhaps it'll bother you. He said, you know, Rick, it seems like the last sexually immoral thing in America today is rape. Everything else is okay. Sex outside of marriage, not a big deal. Adultery, whatever. Homosexuality, it's marriage. And on and on it goes. Everything that the Bible calls out is sexual immorality in our culture is is either permissible or shrugged off. What's tragic to me as a pastor is I see it shrugged off in the church all the time. Well, I know, I know, I know. Shouldn't do that, shouldn't have done that. It's a, I know, I get it. No, you don't. If we shrug it off, we don't get it. Jesus is here. Mm-hmm. You know what that means? You know what Paul says about that? 1 Corinthians 3.16 Do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? It means where you go, He goes. What you do, you subject Him to do. Whatever it is. Sexual immorality in the church at any and every level, my friends, is bringing this upon Jesus. That's what it is. And the only way we don't accept that is if we spiritualize everything. If we make it some, you know, there's my spiritual life, which is this kind of vagueish thing out there that makes me feel good from time to time. And then there's my real life. You know, and the two don't meet. They do meet. They do intersect. You cannot separate the two. And if you think you can, you are being deceived. Alright, we're going to go there. Turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Let's just go ahead and hit it right now. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I'm just going to give you a preview so you can decide if you want to come back again. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 15. And we're going to come back to this passage. I'm going to give you the date in a few minutes just so you can know if you want to be here or not. I'll give you the date. 1 Corinthians 6, 15. Paul says, do you not know that your bodies... He's talking about these fleshly bodies. Soma is the word in the Greek. The fleshly body. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? 
Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? He's talking to Corinth. Remember, they had temple prostitution right there at the Acro-Corinthus, that great mountain that looms above Corinth. The temple of Aphrodite right there. And temple prostitutes and the men and women both of Corinth were used to going out to them. And so coming out of that lifestyle now, he has believers in the church who were used to that. And Paul says, whoa, whoa, whoa. Once you gave your life to Jesus and He came and His Spirit now dwells in you, you're going to take Him out to a prostitute? You're going to subject Jesus to that? Is that really? This is strong language to this church at Corinth that Paul loves so much he will not mince words. He says, may it never be. Verse 16, do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For the Lord has said, or for he says, the two shall become one flesh. That's how it works. Sexual joining is a joining and you become one with that person. But then he goes on. For he says, the two shall become one flesh, but the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit. Your spirit now no longer simply belongs to you. You are now combined with the Holy Spirit of the living God, who is one with your spirit. And Paul says, <laughs> flee immorality. And that word for immorality, pornea. It's where we get pornography. Flee sexual immorality. Stop it, Paul says. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body. doesn't make it less uh, bad, but it's outside the body. Paul points out, but the immoral, that is the sexually immoral man, sins against his own body, do you not know your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? I'm not my own. I don't belong to me anymore. I gave myself to Jesus. Not, now my body has become His temple. It belongs to Him, not Rick. It is not mine to do with as I please. It's mine to do with as it pleases Him. And Paul says... For you have been bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body. And I'll tell you what, if the message of Christ crucified came to mind the moment before any of us engaged in a sexually immoral act, we would stop. Because we would see that we were bought by blood that was poured out by Jesus on the cross. And that is not a sermon. Please don't hear a pastor going, The blood of Jesus! I'm saying this man died for you and for me brutally. Lost every ounce of his blood to pay for the blood that we should lose for our sin. And in so doing, set up a standard. I want to live with you. I want to walk with you. I want to know you and you to know me. Don't take me to the prostitute. Don't take me to the temple of your own sin. Because when I do, I take Jesus with me. So, Wednesday, July 20th, we're going to deal with chapter 5. Which is... Gross immorality. And we will deal with it. Sunday, July 24th, we're going to look at chapter 6. This passage that we just read, we're going to go verse word for word and break it down and understand it. So if it makes you uncomfortable, don't come. Sunday, July 24th. Actually, if it makes you uncomfortable, please come. We're going to deal on Wednesday night, July 27th, and perhaps spill over into the following Sunday. We're going to deal with marriage from the biblical perspective. Divorce, adultery, what do you do if you have an unbelieving spouse? How do you handle all these things? Paul gets into it, so will we.
And the reason, my friends, that we're not going to skirt these issues is authentic Christianity must be otherworldly. We do not belong to a spirit who is from the world, but the Holy Spirit who is from God. So if we're going to live that way, we need to be otherworldly in our mentality and stop being driven by the flesh. And start walking by the Spirit. So ask yourself, do I live by the Spirit of God? Or do I prefer the Spirit of this world? And if your answer is the Spirit of this world, you cannot live by the Spirit of God. It's either or. Verse 12 going on. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God. Which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. That's actually very simple to understand, and it is what I would call, number two, the Spirit's disclosure. The Spirit's dwelling in me, and now the Spirit's disclosure. And what Paul is saying, in essence, is, listen, the things we're telling you don't don't come from us. If there's any wisdom here, it's not from me, Paul says. It's because the Holy Spirit has taught me, and now I'm putting into words what He taught me. Spiritual thoughts, spiritual words. Now, literally, the text is pneumatikos to pneumatikos, combining pneumatikos, spirituals, with pneumatikos, spirituals. I love that because what Paul is doing is he's saying spiritual things are practical. Spiritual things come from the heavens, the wisdom of God, and become practically the things now of the earth that we might understand them. Spiritual thoughts to spiritual words. It's what happens when you study the scriptures, my friends, and suddenly the spiritual thoughts of God that nobody knows but God, now you know because they've been translated by the Holy Spirit. C.R. Holiday puts it this way. He says, in a language appropriate to the message, not with human wisdom. From his spirit to my spirit, and then spoken in an understandable, clear way. Romans 8.26, Paul said, in the same way, the spirit also helps our weakness. We do not know how to pray as we should. But the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words, and He who searches the hearts, that is Jesus, knows what the mind of the Spirit is because He intercedes for the saints according to God. Jesus is the intercessor. We know that from Hebrews 7. So the Spirit takes my thoughts, translates them, Jesus intercedes and takes them to the Father. But it works in reverse as well. That is... Not only does the Spirit intercede from man to God, but from God to man. That we might understand the Lord. He intercedes and He discloses to us the one-time mystery that is Christ in you. What we've been talking about. The Spirit dwelling. Jesus Christ right here. He explains that. He reveals the beautiful relationship. And even more. In fact, look back at verse 9. It says, just as it is written, things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love Him, for to us God revealed them. The mystery is revealed. The end of the book is read. It's understood. These things that eye has not seen and ear has not heard and hasn't entered into the heart of man, guess what? If you know Jesus, He's telling you. He's revealing it to you. It is no longer some kind of hidden mystery. It is now the truth told from His Spirit to my Spirit. Understood. 
Practically what that means is this. If you're lacking in wisdom, ask. James says, does anyone among you lack wisdom? Ask, and it will be given to you. If you're struggling to get something, if you're confused, if you're anxious, if you're uncertain, go to Jesus. Talk to Him. Ask the Spirit of God. That goes for Bible study. I mentioned this on Wednesday night. You might be sitting in a Bible study sometime and going, I have no idea what that guy is saying. It's okay. If you don't understand, don't tune out. Stop right there and go, Lord, help me understand what's being said right now because I'm not sure I'm getting it. This is an active, real, tangible relationship that I don't think we avail ourselves of enough. Walking with the Spirit means you're talking to Him all the time. You have a crisis in your family and you don't know what to do? How about asking the Spirit of the living God? How about saying, Lord Jesus, I don't know what to do with this. I've got issues here. I've got a problem. It goes for Bible study and it goes to the very crises of our lives. Lord, I'm lost. Help me. Father, I don't understand. Jesus, I'm struggling to get this. And the Spirit discloses the things, the wisdom of God. Hey, Jesus said... No longer do I call you servants. For the servant doesn't know what the master is doing. I have called you friends. John 15, 15. I've called you friends for all the things that I've heard from my Father, I've made known to you. Jesus has never been one to keep his friends in the dark. He wants us to come into the light. He wants to explain things to us, to make it real to us, to disclose spiritual truth to us. And you cannot get spiritual truth Listen, you can't get spiritual truth any other way but by the Spirit of God. All the hashtag spirituality stuff is bogus lies. It's not true. It's just the stuff of nothingness. I'm dialing down to nothingness. That still just blows my mind. I don't know where the draw is there. What are you trying to do with your life, Rick? I want to be nothing. Wow, aim high. (laughs) Verse 14. Okay, now, I said we're going to get down to the end and you're going to have to really dial in. So if you were starting to lose it, ask the Spirit to keep you with it. Here we go. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. Number three, we talked about the Spirit's dwelling, the Spirit's disclosure. Number three, spiritual discernment. Spiritual discernment. Paul coins a word here that he uses rarely. He'll only use it four times and all in this letter. James will use it once. I'll show you. Jude will use it once and I'll show you that. Six times total in the New Testament is this word. It surprised me because I've heard it a lot and thought it a lot. And the word is natural. The natural man. The sukikos. Sukikos, it's where we get our word psychology. The Sukikos is the soulish man, the soulish woman. The soul is the seat of intellect and reason. It's where we figure things out or try to understand or learn things. The soulish person is the Sukikos. The root word is suke, which is soul. And to the Greek mind, you need to understand the Tsukikos, Paul says, the natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. (laughs) It's that which is held in common by man and beast. 
It is what I have in common with my dog Reggie. The Sukikos. Not the spirit. Reggie doesn't have a spirit. I know he doesn't. He's the most unspiritual beast on the planet. But he has a soul by this definition, the Sukikos. He is, well, let me explain. The natural man is an animal. The natural man is instinctual, visceral, led by the body and the pleasures of the body, led by the desires and the lusts of the flesh. It's all about the feels. I don't feel like I love my wife anymore. You know what's funny about marriage? Nobody asks you if you felt like it. Did you decide to love her? Then love her. Well, I don't, I don't care if you don't feel it. It's not about the feels. The feels is the flesh. Jesus wants you understand this. And, and if you've already given your life to Jesus, too late. This is what He wants. He wants you body, soul, and spirit. And there are three very definite words in the Scriptures. Body, soma, soul, uh, suke, and spirit, pneuma. And Jesus wants all three. It is your triune nature. We're made in the image of God, who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Guess what? I am spirit, soul, and body. I have a triune nature. And in that triune nature, it is the spirit that draws me toward things that are godly. It is the body that draws me away. And it is the soul where the whole battle takes place. It's the battlefield. And Jesus wants it all. Spirit, body, and soul. He wants it all. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5.23, May the God of peace Himself sanctify you entirely. And may your spirit, Numa, and your soul, Suke, and your body, Soma, be preserved, complete, without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. How many Christians are living this out saying, well, my soul's pretty there, you know, I believe. Yeah, I'm doing things in my body, but you know, it really doesn't matter. It's not that big a deal. Shrugging it off. Jesus says, no, not good enough. I want your spirit, I want your soul, I want your body. I want you all. And the question really for us as we listen to this and consider the Spirit dwelling in us and disclosing things to us, and now this concept of spiritual discernment or understanding, the question is, who's in the driver's seat? Who's driving your life or leading it? Is your body driving your life or is your spirit leading? The Sukikos or the Numa. And the soul is where it all goes down. Now, track this with me. The soul is that battlefield, as I described. And in verse 14, Paul now is going to go negative with this soulish mentality. The, the person who tries to live in the soul, driven by the body. And he talks about this in three negative ways. First of all, he says in verse 14, A natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. First problem, dismissal. You know right away, if you are not living by the Spirit because you are dismissing the Holy Spirit. Dismissal. Ever dismiss Jesus in a relationship? Oh, I don't know that you maybe out loud said, Jesus, could you leave the room for a minute? we got to duke this out. <laughs> Jesus, could you step aside because i got something I want to do and I really don't want you to be there. Guess what? He's there. You don't dismiss him. The natural man, the natural woman, the Sukikos does dismiss him, not accepting the things of the Spirit of God. 
Where is Jesus in my relationships? Where is He in my marriage? Where is He in my decisions? Have I ever dismissed Him to a place of value in my life? And if so, what am I doing? I don't say this to judgment of anyone because I don't have anyone in mind here. I'm just reading what Paul said that to do this is to not accept the things of the Spirit of God. Second thing it does, not only dismissal, but secondly, verse 14 continues and says they are foolishness to Him. You know what that means? When the wisdom of God is foolishness, that means the natural man is in a place of distortion. Not only dismissing the things of God, but now distorting the very truth of God. The beauty of God's wisdom. The wonderful, holy things talked about in Scripture, the natural man dismisses and distorts them. When wisdom becomes foolish, wisdom has been distorted. It's been twisted up. And here's where James uses the word sukikos. He says in James 3.15, This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but it's earthly. It's natural. Sukikos. It's demonic. James pulls in the earth, the soul, and the demonic and says that's the same stuff. And if you are living by the soulish man, the soulish woman, the natural, it's demonic, gang. It's where you're going to trip. It's where you will fall flat on your face and wisdom will become foolish to you. And foolish things will seem to be wise. There is a way which seems right to a man, Proverbs tells us, but in the end it is death. Oh, but it looks so good. That's because I've distorted the wisdom of God. If I'm living in the battlefield of the soul, I may think I'm wise, but in truth, I am driven by instinct and impulse. Let me explain this from a military perspective. Where do the commanders tend to be in the midst of warfare? Do they tend to be on the front line? Or are they back aways? The reason they're back away is, and you all know this, they're not on the front line. Because when you are in the midst of warfare, the reason why we train our men and women, why they are so well trained for warfare and for battle, is so when they get into the thick of it, they're thinking instinctually. Right, guys? They're doing what they were trained to do. There's no thinking. There, there's no mulling it over, praying it through. You shoot, you go, you fight, you do what you were trained to do. But the commander is off the battlefield. Why? So that he is not in the midst of the mess. So he can make clear and wise decisions based on the big picture, not based on the face-to-face moment of the battle. When we sit in the battlefield, we're in the midst of this, and the only thing we can do is live instinctually, rather than spiritually. Don't misunderstand me, my military friends. I'm not saying that when you're in battle that it's wrong. You're trained to do a job. But I'm talking spiritually here that when we live naturally in the natural or the soulish man or woman, we live in that place where it's just... Anybody feel like that in your life from time to time? This is nuts. I don't know what to do. You know what you do in those moments? You stop. Drop to your knees and say, Spirit of the living God, you see clearly what's going on. Help me understand. Give me wisdom. Bring peace. And everything stops. And suddenly, who's in charge of the battle? The Holy Spirit is. And not you. And not your flesh. 
Natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. Dismissal. The natural man feels like they are foolishness to him. That is distortion. And finally, at the end of the verse, verse 14, he says, and he cannot understand them, and that is desolation. That's nothingness. Hashtag nothingness. That's to the point where you've dismissed the Spirit, you've distorted the things of God, and it brings you every time to desolation. And Jude uses the word now. He says these are the ones who cause divisions. Worldly-minded, Sukikos, devoid of the Spirit. That's where it leads. Now, understand, I do not believe that God removes His Spirit from us like He did from Saul. Good news. If you've given your life to Jesus Christ, His Spirit has not trailed off. His Spirit has not said, wow, it's boring around here. Or, dude, this is too much, I've got to take a break. His Spirit is with you. His Spirit is alongside you. And I do not believe that we lose the Spirit of God even when we do dumb natural man stuff. But we can quench the Spirit. He doesn't leave, but we sure can shut Him down. We do have the power to say, I don't want you to be part of this. Okay? We'll see how your natural self works out here. You don't want to do that. We do it. I do it. You do it. We quench the Spirit. We deny the Spirit. We dismiss the Spirit. We distort the words of God. And man, desolation is right there. And yes, there are times in my life as a follower of Jesus where I have felt desolate. And I realize how empty I am without Jesus. I need you, Jesus. In real, tangible, actual relationship. But Paul says, 1 Thessalonians 5.19, Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophetic utterances. Examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. Abstain from every form of evil. But the natural man can't do that because the natural man does not understand the things of God because, at the end of verse 14, note this, because they are spiritually appraised. If you're living by the flesh, you cannot understand God. You can only appraise, assess, judge that which is right by the Holy Spirit. So deny or quench the Spirit and you are denying yourself the ability to discern what is good, what is right, what is perfect in this world. That spiritual discernment is huge. Look at verse 15. But he who is spiritual appraises all things. Note the way even that sounds. He who is spiritual appraises all things. It's not he who cracks open a fortune cookie has it down. Oh, that's what I'm supposed to do. Cool. He who is spiritual appraises all things. And he says, yet he himself is appraised by no one. Well, What does that mean? You with me? Thank you. (laughs) The word for appraisal here is anacrino. Not anacortis, anacrino. Alright? It's it's a compound word in the Greek. Ana, which means upward, and crino, we've seen before, it means judgment. Spiritual appraisal is upward judgment. It is upwardly discerning. It is discerning from a spiritual perspective. It's a great word, anacrino, upward judgment. 
In other words, a person cannot be spiritually discerning without the Spirit of God. You have to upwardly judge things, assess things, understand things. And without the Spirit, you can't do it. Fortune tellers, palm readers, horoscopists, spiritualists, they don't have the Holy Spirit. At best, well, at worst, I should say, they have a demon. Or they're a sham. But that's all it is. Spiritual things outside of the Spirit of Jesus Christ are either demonic or they're a sham. You either have the Spirit of Jesus or you got the Spirit of nothing. Demons, principalities, the rulers of this age, deceit, a sham. And understand this, demonic spirits always bend their attention downward to steal, kill, and destroy. That's what Satan does. The thief who comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Jesus says, I came that you might have life and have it abundantly. And that's the choice. The spiritual man, the natural man. Life, death. And God's Word explains this. That only in a real relationship with Jesus Christ, by His Spirit, can a person discern what is true and good and righteous. Now... A natural man would say that's arrogant. You're telling me only a Christian can know what's good and right in this world? Yes, I am. Well, I'm offended. You should be. But understand this. I'm not saying that Christians are right and understand everything perfectly in this world because of us. I'm saying it's because of the Holy Spirit within me that I have any spiritual discernment at all. It does not come from me. The wisdom does not come from me. Understanding does not come from me. Counsel does not come from me. Strength does not come from me. Knowledge does not come from me. Nor does the fear of the Lord, which by the way I just described for you, the Holy Spirit. Isaiah 11 verse 2, the Spirit of the Lord. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding, counsel and strength, knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Do you want that in your life? You will not have it except by the Holy Spirit of the living God. Spiritual discernment. Oh, but what does he mean, and he himself is appraised by no one at the end of verse 15? Gordon V puts it this way. He says, it has been said that the profane person cannot understand holiness. But the holy person can well understand the depths of evil. Isn't that true? I don't need to see it to understand it. I didn't share this first service, but... I'm already over, so why not tell you now? Um, I was in in a psychological degree. Some of you know I have a master's in clinical psychology, so I understand this soul stuff. I also understand how much of it leads to nothing. And in this degree program, I had to take a class, required class, uh, Human Sexual Dysfunction. Yeah. That was the name of the class. This was back in 87. And I went into that class with fear and trepidation. This little Christian boy walking into this mess. And I'm reading down the syllabus, and I've got the books and stuff, and, and on the syllabus were eight different times throughout the, the, the year that we were going to watch videos. And these videos were all to do with different aspects of human sexual dysfunction. This is education, folks. These videos were 
Well, people having sex. That's what it was. A homosexual couple, an older couple, a younger couple, all these different... Yeah. And they wanted to show these videos so that we could understand what we might deal with as counselors when people came in with problems. I went to the professor and I said, you know, yeah, I don't need to see that. Well, how will you understand? I get it. I I get it. I don't have to smoke pot to know what it does. I I get, I understand. I I don't need that. I don't need those images, those pictures. She said, okay, well, she made a deal with me because I was Christian and and she said, all right, you don't have to come on those days, but just get the notes. Thank you. So I marked off those days on the calendar to make sure that I could uh, get the notes and not watch the videos. And I came into class one day on a day that was not a video day. And there was the film projector, the little video projector, and I went, oh, what's going on here? Oh, it didn't work last week, so she's going to show it today. Great. So now I'm in a quandary. I either get up and walk out of the class, and I have been working really hard with, uh, there were 12 of us in the class, 10 uh, pagans and two Christians. And I'm like, what do I do with this? So I thought, okay, I'm just, I'm just not going to watch. So I close my eyes. I forgot that you couldn't close your ears. So I'm just sitting there going, Jesus loves me this time. <laughs> For the Bible tells me that. And just trying to ignore what was going on on the screen. When it was over, here, here's the difference between the spiritual man, and I'm not trying to highlight myself as all spiritual, no, but the Holy Spirit was with me, and the natural man. Lights go on, everybody turns around, and the girl sitting beside me who was bisexual turned to me and said, he's a homophobe. He wouldn't watch the video. Why wouldn't you watch the video? And made, made it all about me. And I said to her back then very clearly, I said, you know what? I didn't need to see it to know. I understand. You see, the spiritual person appraises all things. The spiritual person understands. The spiritual person gets it. Even evil. We understand evil. I don't agree with it. I don't want it around me. I don't want to be near it. I don't have to see it to understand it because the spiritual person gets it. But the non-spiritual person does not get holiness. Does not understand righteousness. Doesn't know why you're wasting your time this morning. The non-spiritual person, the, the natural man, the natural woman, they don't understand. That's what he says. That's what he means when he says he himself is appraised by no one. Now, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 12.3, I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God can say Jesus is accursed. Isn't that good news? You can't curse Jesus if you have the Holy Spirit. But he also says, no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now Paul is getting real. He's not just talking about spouting off. He's talking about faith. No one can claim Jesus Christ by faith without the Holy Spirit. Which means if you chose Jesus, the Holy Spirit caused that to happen in you. Praise the Lord. The Holy Spirit opened your eyes at the right moment and you said, I believe. It's the work of the Spirit. This is real life, real relationship we're talking about here. Legitimate faith. Okay, last verse and we're done. Verse 16. For who has known the mind of the Lord that He will instruct Him? But we have the mind of Christ. This is mind-boggling. This is remarkable. Paul concludes his line of reasoning by paraphrasing Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. 
You need to hear what Isaiah said and compare this with what Paul just wrote. Listen again to Paul's. Who has known the mind of the Lord that He will instruct him? Isaiah said, Who has directed the Spirit of the Lord, or as His Counselor has informed Him? You heard the difference, didn't you? Paul uses the word mind. Isaiah uses the word Spirit. Why the difference? Paul is talking in context about the understanding of Christ. And in fact, that word there means understanding, comprehension. It's, it's, it's the thoughts of Christ, the wisdom of Christ, the understanding of Jesus. Who has known the understanding of the Lord? Well, Isaiah says, who has known the Spirit, the Ruach in Hebrew. Who has known the Spirit of the Lord? Understanding of the Lord, Spirit of the Lord, same thing. Same thing. Because what God understands, He understands by His Spirit. He knows by His Spirit. His Spirit knows. And so Paul's taking it and he's dialing it down to discernment. And he's saying, do you see what I'm talking about? When you have the Spirit of the Lord, you have the understanding of the Lord. Are you with me? You have the understanding of God to help you discern this world. Wow! And then, as if that's not enough... Paul ends by saying, but we have the mind of Christ. We have the understanding of Jesus. You want to know Him? He gives you His Spirit so that you can know Him intimately and personally. You can understand the world the way He does. You can think and process the way He does. This is practical instruction on living life with discernment, upward judgment. How do I spiritually discern in the craziness of the battlefield of the soul? What do I do? Invite the invasion of the Holy Spirit. Ask Jesus to come right into the midst of it. Let Him be the commander who sees things clearly. And live by His Spirit. Your Spirit. Listening to His Spirit. Paying attention to things that are spiritual. And my friends, rejecting outright the notion that spiritual somehow means vague. It does not. Spiritual, where Jesus Christ is concerned, is relationship. It is knowing Him. And so Paul said, Galatians 5.25, If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Finally, 2 Corinthians 3.17, Paul said, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Maybe it's time for your Independence Day. Maybe it's time for you to vote yourself out of the kingdom of the world and into the kingdom of God. Maybe it's time for you to rally around the cross, rally to the Holy Spirit of the living God and say, I no more will live by this world. I'm going to live for the kingdom. I'm going to live for the kingdom in my spirit. I'm going to live for the kingdom in my soul, in my mind. And I am going to live for the kingdom with this body, knowing that wherever this body goes, the king goes as well. I don't know that it gets any more real than that. I hope you got it. Let's pray. Father, Lord Jesus, Spirit of the living God, would You come afresh into our lives? upon our hearts, upon our souls, and even, yes, Lord, over our physical bodies to live for You. 
to be washed by the water and the Word this morning. To accept and know what is true because Your Spirit has taught these things to us. Father, to belong to You. And Jesus, to be in that knowing relationship where there is nothing to hide, there is nothing hidden between us, there are no unspoken words. Lord, bring us to Your side. Father, there are some among us this morning who desperately need Your forgiveness. Need to repent of living life in such a way where they have dragged Your Spirit into unmentionable places. I pray today will be a time of repentance. Father, there are some among us perhaps who have never believed in Jesus, never claimed Him as Lord. I pray that Your Spirit will now open their hearts, pierce their hearts with the cross to receive the truth of Jesus. And to a person, man and woman alike, may we reject the natural and learn to live for the spiritual. In Jesus' name, Amen.